This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So we know that cyber criminals are targeting high net worth individuals, but how prevalent is it? How much of this is the tip of the iceberg and how much of this is underwater? So I would say we don't really know because the numbers and the specifics are so hard to come by. Welcome to What The Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam Levin. I'm Bo Friedlander. And I'm Travis Taylor. Emily Flitter, New York Times reporter. We're excited to have you on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Emily, it's great to have you on the show. And I have to say, I'm very excited to talk to you. I just, I just got your book. The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. Can you tell us a little bit about the book, Emily? So the book goes through the different parts of the financial system and basically describes how much racism is there all the time. From when a Black customer walks into a bank to do something like cash a check or even withdraw their own money, to insurance policies and what happens when a Black claimant files a claim, all the way up to high finance, where employees at the biggest financial institutions who are Black have a really difficult time. I was amazed at how uh, redlining is alive and well in this country. I I know better to think that that there's no racism in the financial system, but I was shocked to hear how pervasive it was. It's really bad. And the thing that has become such a huge element of the discussions that I've had with people since the book has come out is how big the divide is between the world in which privileged white people function and just have no idea that this is happening. And then the world in which if you're black, this is so familiar to you. That is among other things, your, your, your beat at the New York times, you worked at Reuters before that. And We're having you on the show today to talk about a financial crime. Um, How did you come upon this story? My beat is pretty broad. It's the impact of finance on society. I have a long history of writing about financial crime. I've been writing about the FTX blow up, the bankruptcy, and the revelation that the entire company was basically a fraud. Um, And... The story that I did um, recently, which uh, was about that, was about how scammers have figured out how they can mimic bank customers' voices using AI to try to get into their bank accounts and get them to transfer money to the scammers. This is becoming a more and more pervasive problem, for sure. What's interesting about this is that the person that you interviewed He's been unwilling to talk about it on our podcast or on any other media outlet because he doesn't want to get scammed again. Uh, I've had experience working with high net worth people, but the one thing that's clear is they don't really want to talk about it. How did you get him to talk? 
Uh, Clive is a businessman in South Florida. I am from South Florida and I go back there frequently and I met Clive years ago. And when this happened to him, he, you know, already knew me and trusted me and came to me with this story. And we talked about how important it was that the, that this story get out in the public because certainly the banks do not ever want to talk about this. Bo, you said back in your Uber driving days that you had an encounter with an IT manager for a hedge fund. Yes, I, I was. If briefly, I found myself driving a guy about my age who handled IT for a hedge fund. As I was doing, because I was really not that into driving, I kept looking for guests on what the heck, because I thought, you know, like, have you been scammed? And this guy told me a whopper. He was in the business of shaving nanoseconds. Do you know about this, Emily? Sure. High frequency trading? Yep. So that was his job. And he was explaining to me where the hubs were and why they got an office like a half a block from, you know, where this hub was and all that stuff. I, it was all new to me and interesting. Anyway. There's a whole Michael Lewis book about it. It's fascinating stuff. So I was fascinated by that. And then he explained to me that this group of people who are clearly very gifted and very intelligent had just of their own accord sent a scammer more than a half a million dollars cash. Wow. If it's going to happen to them, who is safe? Nobody. And that's the whole point. So, Emily, what happened? What's Clive's story? Clive is very much, you know, an independent operator. He's not running an office with a bunch of employees or working for a large corporation. He invests his own money and he pools investors' money to invest in, in companies, in startups. And he was putting together a deal and... It involved getting a bunch of investors to all pool their money in a specific bank account that he controlled at Bank of America. So he calls up the banker, uh, the business banker who he normally deals with in a an office in Palm Beach County in South Florida. And he says to her, look, I'm going to be collecting some money. It's several hundred thousand dollars. And then I'm going to go to Israel which is where the company was that he was going to invest in. And he said, eventually, I want to transfer this money, which is the, the seed money for this investment, to another bank. And I'll give you the instructions, but just wanted to let you know, because I'm going to be out of the country, that this is happening. These instructions will be forthcoming. So we know that Clive is looking to put together a fund for various people yeah. to invest in a startup in Israel. What happens next? So he's gone. His banker gets a phone call. It looks like it's coming from him. She picks it up and it's his voice, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's repetitive. When she tries to talk, this voice interrupts her and it's really creepy, but this garbled message is coming through. And the message is that 
the money needs to be transferred somewhere else. And she's really suspicious, so she hangs up. And then her phone rings again. Again, it really looks like it's his number. She picks it up, and it's the same thing. It's like, it's him, but there's something off. And she just, at that point, is really freaked out. So did they uh, clone his phone number? That is the best guess of everybody involved. That sort of seems to imply a little bit of uh, insider knowledge there, that someone knew who he was, knew his number, and knew to call this one person. That's right. And when Clive first told me this story, I mean, I was sort of like having to piece together how it could have happened, starting from the end point without knowing what was the backstory and basically like looking at a machine but not being able to open it up and see all its parts. With most hacks, I think we're finding that it's really our best guess. Half the time, we just don't know. Even when we think we know, we don't really know. This is based on my interviews with experts in this field who do security for banks and who are focused on hacking and cybersecurity. Hackers often break into large financial institutions and they can get really important data like social security numbers and bank account numbers. But the people who break into these big organizations aren't the same people who know necessarily how best to use this data. So you've got these teams of people, they're constantly attacking these big banks and big financial companies. And when they get in and they're able to get batches of social security numbers or bank accounts, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands or even millions of customer data points. What they do is they sell it. They sell it in the black market of the internet using all of the sort of clandestine tools that hackers use to move things around without being able to be traced. And the buyers of these data are the people who better know how to use them. And what they do, they research these individual data points and try to build a profile of a person who might own, for instance, this bank account. Let's say you have an account and a social security number. You basically are looking for that needle in a haystack. You're looking for the account of somebody who is wealthy enough that you care what's in that bank account. Like Adam. Exactly. Sadly, true. But it's something we're going to be exploring at length in an upcoming episode. Were you able to kind of get a sense of how these criminals work and they uh, drill down until they find a good target? Yes. So so the people who who are sort of the the intermediaries here, they've bought the data from the hackers. Their whole value add is doing this research. They sit down and they just comb through all of this information that's on the internet and see if they can build up matches. Do I know exactly how they do that? No. Well, I think a lot of it, actually, there's some sorting that probably can be done through programming a, a code. And I'm also thinking some of it or a fair amount of it is open source intelligence kind of work where you look up a name and you cross correlate it with, you know, big donate donations to not for profits or to political campaigns. And you can really easily start to see a pattern. Oh, absolutely. I think the hard part would be, and this is this is literally just 
actually my own knowledge of knowing how to work up a profile of a person um, using open source data. I think like the hard part would be narrowing the initial batch down from the hundreds of thousands of different bank account numbers you might have. How many people statistically are going to have a real lot of money in their bank accounts versus, you know, an account with like 50 bucks in it? You don't care about that. And you have to find who's worth going farther. Once you have that, though, it is so easy to find a ton of personal information, especially about rich people on the Internet. You can find out who is going to society events because there are all these pictures. So they've got to be rich, right? I mean, if they're showing up in a really fancy dress to like the Metropolitan Museum of Art garden party, chances are they've got more than $50 in their bank account. There's all kinds of free stuff on the internet that will help you build a profile. And you don't even have to know exactly how rich they are. You just have to make sure that your judgment is that they are an adequate target. You could, A, a you could buy a list, but the ultimate shortcut is break into the high net worth group in each of these financial institutions. See if you can hack into email systems or get your hands on the different files they have of the people that are their most important clients. Great idea, Adam. <laughs> this spring, get out there, enjoy the weather, and recapture the magic of riding a bike with electric e-bike. With an amazing variety of models built for riders of all abilities, it's never been easier to fall in love with riding again. Plus, every electric e-bike ships free and only requires quick, toolless assembly. This is my first ever e-bike, and the experience has just been great. I was a little bit intimidated at first because I hadn't gone biking in a while, but the 500-watt motor that the electric e-bike comes with really gives you a nice little boost, especially if you're trying to go uphill or pick up some speed. Data shows that e-bike riders take their bike out more often. That means... You get more exercise, more exploration, and wait for it, fresh air. And riding an e-bike isn't like, it's not cheating. It's just making it possible for you to be out there longer on each ride. And speaking of things going a little slower, you can finance electric e-bike for as little as $49 a month. Get into spring with electric e-bikes, the number one selling e-bikes in the nation. Get your adventure started at electricebikes.com. And please mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-B-I-K-S dot com. So, Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data already out there, but is there something that you can do? Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis. I use it. I like it. And they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and enter promo code WTH at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash WTH, promo code WTH, which stands for what the hack. 
and we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What That. Did Clive share with you what the deep fake actually said? So what he said was it was garbled. His banker really thought it was his voice, but it was not fooling her in the sense that there was something like just fake about the voice. I mean, it wasn't, it, you know, it didn't sound like uh, a smooth talking Clive who knew exactly what Clive wanted. It, as, as he said, it was repetitive. It was talking over her. And the phrasing and even the syntax of his sentences was just not quite right. Now, did was it garbled in, intentionally, do you think, or was it actually uh, just put together badly? Well, here's my opinion based on just what's out there right now. I think it's highly possible that the hackers were doing the best they could. And at that very moment when this happened, it was in the spring of this year, the best that they could do was not perfect. Has Clive done a lot of public speaking? Are there a lot of uh, publicly available recordings of his voice or is it pretty limited? He has done public speaking. I uh, tried to find examples of it on the internet and I had no problem. He gave a speech at a conference on startup investing and he also did a fundraiser that required him to post a short video of himself eating a huge lump of horseradish <laughs> which actually like if i'm imagining myself as a hacker trying to kind of put together a fake version of somebody's voice using technology i would want something like that because it's a little bit more varied and dynamic and emotional than a lot of public speeches maybe that's pretty common for hackers is to find existing media and harvest it now, did the voice sound like uh, Clive after he just finished eating the horseradish? <laughs> I, knew, or, well, I knew. I knew you know, somehow. <laughs> I didn't get to hear the voice. I mean, I would have loved yeah. to have heard it. And it makes me wonder whether Bank of America has that recording somewhere in the giant, vast stores of data that it has. But, it, but I don't know. And, you know, Adam has done a lot of public speaking. He's done a ton of appearances on TV and radio. So um, I'm just putting it out there, Travis, Emily. If you in, you know. <laughs> Thanks, really guys. Stop giving no, people but, the wrong idea. But yeah. that, is, that is the reason why I think Clive very intelligently did not want to do a lot of media about this because the more you're out there, the more you're out there. And you, my voice, go ahead, use it to do something. I guarantee you it won't work. Or, you know, great, you barely go buy a bike. But, I mean, with people who are high net worth individuals, their voice is worth a lot of money, potentially. Well, do you, do Emily, do you think that they have voice verification systems, voice printing systems that the banks are using now, or we're not there yet? Oh, no. They definitely use voice verification at the big banks in call centers. But the difference between having a sort of trap that catches all of the bad stuff that's coming in through a voice verification system where you're, as the customer, you're calling up and, and sort of like this AI is taking over. It wants to make sure that it's you 
And so you have to say some kind of predetermined phrase or you just have to say your name and the thing checks you out. It's easier for these banks to then employ these defense systems that 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 test the responses that the, the caller is giving for like life signs than it is for you or me to figure out what's going on when randomly we just get a phone call and it looks like somebody who we already know is calling us. If the deep fake, which is what these things are all called, is good enough, I think that the problem really is when a human is answering the phone and having to make a determination himself or herself about who they're hearing. Part of it is the relationship that the individual has with his or her banker. Because I know that I have certain bankers who call me and actually they call me and we have kind of this little repartee that we have. I would guess, you know, that the better you know your banker and the better your banker knows you, the safer you both are from these kinds of deepfakes. And when these calls came in, Clive's banker, you know, identified that it wasn't him. And she shut all communication down with him. She wouldn't even answer his emails until he actually visited her in her office in South Florida. And so that's the way you could get around that. But another way you could get around it on the phone is if you have a rapport where you're joking, you have some kind of like thing that requires a human brain that would elicit like a response from either one of you like, oh, the real so-and-so, the real Adam would never actually say that. I know that because I know Adam. No, but you know, the thing is, the real Adam, this guy right over here, if, if there are tons of instances on this podcast of Adam saying something sarcastic in Yiddish and, <laughs> and, and, you know, and his financial officer or the person in charge of his account or the person who works for the person in charge of his account knows that if Adam's going to call and wire money, he's probably going to say something like, kill me, or whatever, <laughs> you know, and, you know, or like, I, I, how are you doing? Well, I'm good for the time being, but I'm about to be worse, you know, something like that. And, um, and, and that is the missing ingredient. Travis, we have some experience with this. Well, yeah, a few months ago, we did a, um, an episode that was actually written by AI and the biggest uh, challenge that we had was actually finding a convincing AI voice generator where we ended up just actually having to uh, just find someone to read the transcript. So you remember some of the attempts we got? Oh yeah, no, it was, um, it was always very, very flat. So when you have someone uh, speaking like that, it was just this uh, like very hard monotone. Right. Um, which, you know, to your point, I think you mentioned before that, you know, if you have someone eating horseradish uh, on recording, <laughs> you can get a little bit more of a vocal range. But for the most part, um, one of the limitations currently for AI generated voices are it's going to be a very monotonous, like me singing a happy birthday to Adam level kind of <laughs> flat tone. But so, the, you know, horseradish not included, though, is is the takeaway with these AI generators. They They mm -hmm. are flat. They don't have a sense of emotive force anywhere in the sentence. And that's even when, with some of these applications, you can choose to place stress and emotion. Mm -hmm. It still is not that great. You know, one of the examples that we didn't get into the story because we just didn't have space, but um, the one of the, the cybersecurity experts that I interviewed told me about was 
There was a CEO of a company who gave a town hall, like all hands meeting on Zoom. And hackers broke into that company's records and just stole all the video from the meeting. I mean, imagine how dynamic that would be. <laughs> and there is the, the, the well-known story of a CEO of a portfolio company getting a call, an actual call from the CEO of the parent company, asking him to wire money to a specific account. He was totally convinced he was speaking to the CEO for the parent company. He wired it. About three weeks later, they ran into each other and he explained that he took care of the what, what was requested and the, the parent company CEO looked at him and like, what are you talking about? Oh. Anyway, money yeah. never got recovered and that guy was fired. So it's, uh, they're getting better, unfortunately. But, but, you know, Adam, if a casino gets hit and it's a cash hit and nobody needs to know about it, I'm kind of doubtful that they'd ever say anything about it because financial organizations and casinos definitely are financial organizations, even though they're companies. They've, they're probably pretty secretive about anything they can be secretive about. Well, I think that depending upon the banking regulations of a specific state or federal banking regulations or SEC regulations now, yeah. it's one thing if you've been attacked and nothing happened. But it's another thing if, if you've been attacked and either it was a ransomware situation or your data was stolen, you really are required, especially under a variety of state laws, you are required to disclose. But we do know that even when banks disclose, they don't really disclose, and they never really want folks to know about what happened. Oh, absolutely. So I actually have been writing about these kinds of hacks for years, and 10 years ago, banks just would never admit that they had been hacked only under the barest circumstances in which they were required would they ever say anything about it, and you could never get any details you're right that there are disclosure requirements, but they're mostly centered around the harm that has been done. And so if the institution is kind of swallowing a loss, they don't have to disclose things in the same way that they do if a bunch of people's social security numbers were stolen, if you can see the distinction. But even in cases where they're not hacked, you know, and money is stolen from them, they really don't want to talk. And this was one of them. Clive actually told me that not only did this happen at Bank of America, but that he has another institution that he works with for wealth management and that he actually had a discussion with his wealth manager about how this institution internally had been warning its employees about these voice deep fakes. And I said, OK, well, do you think your wealth manager would want to talk to me? He said, no, no way. This institution does not want to be a part of this story. That is like the standard response. It's like total hen in sand. Even though you would think that they would want to say, look, this is happening and we know about it, they don't. And part of the reason they don't is because they don't want hackers to know how much they know. The FBI and the Secret Service both investigate certain aspects of cybercrime, and they only release information about the losses from attacks and about the number of attacks in aggregate in these reports that come out in a lag and they're very nonspecific. So from the most recent report, which was the 2022 annual report, I can see that over the past five years, the FBI has seen 20, almost $28 billion in losses from internet scams and attacks. Now we're talking about like a, a ton of different kinds of attacks 
that could be phishing. They could be hacking and stealing personal data. They could be calling people on the phone and pretending to be tech support and then getting people to go to their computers and, you know, open them up, that kind of thing. The Secret Service is specifically involved in dealing with attacks on financial institutions. And what they say is that recently they have stopped billions of dollars from being taken out of the U.S. from these hacks. But they but it's really I mean, it's just incredibly vague. So we don't know. I can't tell you, you know, from a bank name how much the bank has lost over the past five or 10 years to hacks like this. We do know that, that banks have always been a target. Willie Sutton, when asked, why do you go after banks? His response was, because that's where the money is. We also know that financial institutions have a tendency to be better protected than a lot of other institutions, like, for instance, educational institutions or medical institutions, things like that. But from your experience, from what you've been seeing, are there, is it ATM attacks? Are there cyber attacks on on data with these institutions? When you've been talking to people, what did you find? ATMs still get attacked. There are still cyber attacks. You're absolutely right, though. Banks, I mean, their bread and butter is keeping people's money safe, and they spend a lot of time and money doing it. And again, they don't want to talk about when anything goes wrong, and they don't want to talk about specifically what they're doing to prevent it. So I I can't even give you a breakdown between hacking and ATM skimming. All of that is is possible in the realm of security issues that a bank has to deal with on a daily basis. We all remember back in the day that there were attacks on ATMs where um, hackers had figured out how to make an ATM cough up money, period. They would close the gap and that would be done. We know there were cyber breaches where people got the kind of information Adam was talking about. And they can even target the high net worth people that Adam suggested might be the quickest route if you're a criminal looking for a way to get into this sort of business. Sure. But how do banks deal with successful crimes? For hacks, they pretty much have to eat the loss. They're never going to call customers. And really, how could they? I mean, if hackers come in and hack a bank and take some money, what are they going to do? Blame it on the customer whose account got hacked? There's no way to do that. So if a hack happens and actual funds get transferred, that's on the bank. Uh, They, again, they don't announce it. And law enforcement doesn't announce it until way later and they don't use the bank's name. So we just really don't know how often this happens to any one institution? How often do hackers really breach the security systems of these banks and get money? I'll tell you what thing, one thing we do know, and that is that if individual retail customers from these big banks get scammed, the banks basically want no part in it. So, you know, I get stories all the time, and they're really sad about, like somebody wrote to me last week, their parent was the victim of a horrible scam that went on for months where these people convinced this elderly person that they were investigating 
a crime and that they were actually investigators connected with the bank that the person had. And then they said something like, you know, order iPhones and leave them in a box on your porch steps and then transfer money to this account so we can follow it and trace it and see if we can find the bad guys. And, you know, stuff that when you and I would hear that, we would know that there's no way real investigators would ever make somebody do that. But this person believed them transferred more than a million dollars from their bank account. And I mean, we're talking like a regular savings account that this person had and basically drained their life savings. And the bank was like, that's not our problem. I know of a couple where they had a joint savings account that had $50,000 in it. They weren't watching it on a daily basis. And all of a sudden, there was a net, a second account opened up that had the wife's name on it, but the name of somebody that had no relationship to the family. And then a week or two later, a third bank account was opened that didn't have the wife's name on it, that had two other names on it. And the money was quietly moved from bank account one to two to three. When they finally noticed it, they notified the bank and the bank for months said, not our problem. You should have been watching more carefully. Not our problem, which was, you know, pretty distressing. That's terrible. Is that the end? Eventually, because they were the squeaky wheel and they kept pushing and pushing and pushing, they did end up getting it resolved in their favor. But I have no doubt that people who would have been less aggressive might have been forced by the institution. Yeah, actually, there's a really common scam out there now that targets wealthy people who aren't ultra rich but who might have like $50,000 in a savings account, it's where the scammers will call. And it the call that's coming in looks like it's actually from the bank. It'll say something like, you know, a name of a big bank and then fraud detection services. And the caller says, we've noticed some fraudulent activity in your account and we want to verify that you made this transaction. And the person says, oh my God, I didn't want that money transferred, you know, to where you're saying, like, please stop it immediately. And the, the fraudster then goes, okay, well, quick, give me your PIN number, this one-time access code, like, I'm going to send you, and you read it to me. What they've done is they've already sort of gotten sort of halfway into the bank account online, and they need to get the rest of the way, and the person on the phone actually helps them reset the password and reset all of the information so that this person can now transfer. Banks are saying, that's not our problem. Guys, enough of the instruction. <laughs> Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there, struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rope Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rose got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month 
and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash ADAM. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing, and I need to make split-second financial decisions, and that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks, and I trade options, and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You've got to know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. All right, Emily, can you talk a little bit about the role that the Secret Service plays and, and when do they get involved in bank crimes? So this, it, the Secret Service is really interesting. They used to, like before the internet, be in charge of spotting and preventing counterfeit money. But as the internet took over more and more parts of our lives, they became like the cybercrime task force investigators for the financial system. So they're the people who come in when hackers actually and ATM skimmers and anybody else who's trying to use electronic transfers to to steal money from any part of the financial system, the the Secret Service gets involved when that happens. So, you know, the FBI is um, investigating scams and phishing and that kind of stuff. When it comes to actual hacks, it's the Secret Service. So what did we learn today, everybody? <laughs> I need to rob more banks, apparently. Yeah, no, Emily. Um, so Clive did us all a favor by telling this story. Did Bank of America willingly tell this story or was it? coerced out of them. Now, I obviously, Bank of America has a statement in the story. The statement says that they are vigilant and always, you know, staying on top of their security issues and that they're trying to make sure that every customer's assets are completely safe and and they won't talk about individual customers. So let's let's put a pin in that and let's say that the other piece of information that listeners can use or readers of the story can use to figure out who told me what, that if Bank of America had called me up and said, you know what, Clive is lying. He's totally making this up. You can't print this. I wouldn't have. They could have done that and it might not have been true. Does that happen in your world? Yes, there are times when all kinds of entities try to talk me out of doing something that I have information about. And it is true, but it really is not going to be good for them. But I think in this case, I, you know, if that had happened, I, I just would have been like, look, I've, I've got this customer of yours who's got really specific details and he's going on the record and he's saying that this happened to him. Like, you know, really, are you going to like, how far do you want to take this? It did. I mean, that that didn't. You know, it did not happen. I mean, I'm just I can only say what Bank of America said, uh, like that's in the story. 
let me put it this way. If I had reason to doubt that the Clive story was true, I wouldn't have used it. And so I did check it out. I'm sure plenty of people have been listening to this episode and they've been wondering, how likely is this sort of crime? And could it affect me? Is this a crime that is endemic to high net worth individuals, Emily, or is this something that everybody should be thinking and worrying about? So I think that there are a couple of answers to that question. We have a huge privacy problem in the world, but specifically in the United States. I mean, we are like giving our sensitive personal information away for free left and right. Is that going to come back and bite us? Maybe. And this is how it's happening. Is every one of us as juicy a target as the next person? No. But I don't know if that should be a comfort. So I, I also do know that the, the financial system as a whole and everybody working in it takes this stuff super seriously and is working just as hard as the hackers, at least, to develop new ways to combat this stuff. So it's a total arms race. Cybersecurity experts are really worried about this. But I think like this is this is happening in in the context of a larger, uh, you know, situation that we're all dealing with. And this is just one little piece of it. So I'm not sure anyone needs to be losing sleep over it as an isolated thing. Well, Emily, we really appreciate you spending time with us today and talking about this. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. And the book, if you didn't catch it in the beginning, is The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. It's by Emily Flitter and it was published by Atria. So, you know, Adam, I find it very interesting that I probably could double or triple my salary just by uh, pointing a criminal in your direction. It's really heartening to hear, Bo. I truly appreciate that. It's, uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, I'm curious to hear what you... I thought you were supposed to assist me in wealth building as opposed no, I, to... I would like to. Wealth and depletion. If, if you're listening, you can help us by rating and reviewing the show. You can do that on wherever you listen to podcasts, but also just tell people about the show. I am here for that, Adam. But I am sort of shocked at the amount of um, enterprise these criminals show in going after the right targets. I mean, when you think about these criminals, you think about the investment research arm of hedge funds. Yeah. Because that's the level of research that a lot of these organizations do. And they are organizations. Well, you're talking about, in, in a sense, you're kind of talking about people who had they come from a different walk of life or maybe had different, made different decisions in high school. They might have been at an Ivy League school and they might have ended up at Goldman, but they're smart. They just <laughs> don't, they don't want to work so hard. And if you don't want to work so hard, why make a mint in a hedge fund when you can just steal a hedge funder's mint? Well, one thing that I don't want to uh, overlook here is the fact that cybercrime uh, tends to be constantly democratizing. It still was a little bit of a surprise to hear a reporter at a, at a reputable news uh, company say, had the bank called and said, that's a lie, she would not have reported the story. 
because it, it does open the door for another kind of moral hazard. And I don't trust entities to report accurately what has happened to them. And I do think as consumers, we deserve to know. I'm sort of of a two minds about that. On one hand, yes, I do feel like transparency is pretty crucial, especially when you're talking to your customers. But at the same time, if you keep on letting people know, like, oh, by the way, we're getting robbed left and right, you are going to get a lot more people feeling emboldened to, <laughs> uh, to try that out. It's like if you think that Silicon Valley Bank had a run on it, imagine another bank going, oh, yeah, we're being robbed every minute. It's like, okay, we're out of here. Guys, it's time for a tinfoil swan. Our paranoid takeaway to help keep you safe on and offline. Can someone steal my voice? When I answer the phone and uh, I suspect it might be not my bank, if I don't know who's calling, I usually say something along the lines of, mm-hmm, true or false. Adam has said you do not want to say yes because it can be used by a scammer. Travis? I've heard that. I've heard about it more of a... Um and I, the, the risk of it rather than I've heard of any actual examples of it happening. Travis is the king of speculating about what kind of crime can be committed with technology that is still more or less in beta. That is correct about Travis, but what you have to understand, there are a lot of unseemly organizations out there that if they can just get you saying the word yes, this has nothing to do with intonation or anything. It's just you saying yes that when you challenge the fact that you have a subscription to something, they can say, don't be ridiculous. Here is a voice tape where you're asked, <laughs> do you want to get this particular publication or this product or service? And here's the tape of you saying yes. But in the spirit of Travis figuring out crimes that could be committed by things that aren't quite fully baked, I agree. <laughs> I agree entirely. I think that you know, the limitations are only the imagination of the jerk who's got your information. Well, I mean, the pretty low-tech uh, thing I found I just do at this point is I don't answer my phone. Even if it's claiming to be from the bank. I'm like, wait, I'm going to listen to the voicemail and then follow up. But if you listen to the voicemail, a very important thing is don't call the phone number in the voicemail. Go to the back of your payment card and look for the phone number that's there or go online and confirm independently the phone number and then contact them. Definitely. Yep. So this week's, I get, let me see if I get this straight, Adam. <laughs> this is a Mr. Miyagi sort of tinfoil swan, which is the best way to avoid getting scammed by a scam caller is to not answer the phone. There is no upside to answering the phone when the number you see is either an unfamiliar number or a vaguely familiar number or even a number that looks like it's the real deal because if it's important they'll leave a message if they leave a message you'll have a clue as to who it is but you still need to independently confirm always question always verify never trust and that's our tinfoil swan What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. You can find us online at adamlevin.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin. <laughs>